Welcome to Resilient Forward, a podcast created by Baguette Group to educate the public and promote solutions to Florida's most challenging environmental issues. I'm your host, Irela Baguette. I've been a longtime advocate of the environment and the economy. I invite you to join me every week as we showcase resilient solutions, feature innovative strategies, products, and services from prominent members of the business community, including industry leaders, advocates, and elected officials all engaged in developing and implementing resilient solutions in their community. So with us today, I'm pleased to welcome three amazing women who work with the National Parks Conservation Association's Sun Coast region. They are all dedicated to protecting, conserving, and restoring our national parks in Florida. Louisiana and the Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico. Welcome ladies, so why don't you all go ahead and introduce yourselves. Caroline McLaughlin, Associate Director of the Sun Coast Region. I'm Jacqueline Crusad, I'm Associate Director for National Partnerships for National Parks Conservation Association. And I'm Kara Cap. I have the pleasure of being MPCA's Everglades Restoration Program Manager. Great, well welcome ladies. And let's talk a little bit about the history of MPCA. They got started over almost 100 years uh, ago. 2019 will be our centennial year, and it is 100 years of national park protection. Um, you know, the Park Service was created in 1916, and that was wonderful, quite an achievement uh, that these amazing places were going to be protected in perpetuity. Um, and the first director of the Park Service understood, he had a lot of foresight, his name was Stephen Mather, and him and others really understood that while these amazing places are protected, they also have a lot of um, wealth in the boundaries of those parks. They have water, they have minerals, they have you know, lumber, they have game um, that with shifting political winds might not necessarily be protected in perpetuity as was the plan. So um, he created National Parks Conservation Association or NPCA, because it's quite a long name, um, to be the citizen's nonpartisan voice for America's national parks, to ensure that our national parks uh, remain protected for the enjoyment of current and future generations. So speaking of anniversaries, Biscayne National Park just recently celebrated its 50th anniversary. Um, who can talk to me a little bit about how that park got established and the cool uniqueness of that particular park, which is one of my favorites. So Biscayne National Park is actually our country's largest marine national park. It's about 95% water, um, 173,000 acres, and it protects a really unique set of different kinds of ecosystems. You have the longest intact stretch of mangroves on Florida's east coast. You have seagrass beds, sea turtles, um, mangrove ecosystem, 42 different keys or islands, actually the northernmost portion of the Florida Keys are protected by Biscayne National Park. And also a part of the Florida Reef Tract, which is the third largest barrier reef ecosystem in the world. So this is a really unique and special place. And it's also an urban park, which you don't typically think about when you're out on the water. But Biscayne National Park is located right in the backyard of the city of Miami, which is the largest or one of the fastest growing metropolitan areas in this country. So it's a very special place that we're lucky to have here in South Florida. It's very special and very vulnerable. 
and we're going to get into a little bit of the history because um, it was a group of concerned citizens who actually helped designate it a national park and advocated at the federal level to do so. Yeah, the um, you know Biscay National Park didn't just happen; it was a fight, and uh, it was a, a long and, and difficult uh, fight. And luckily, um, conservationists persevered and won that fight, so we we're able to enjoy these, this beautiful bay today. Um, one of the there's lots of lots of ideas on how to develop the bay. And one of them was to make it the next Miami Beach by having a long stretch of causeways to connect the different keys that Caroline had just mentioned um, and have it be, you know, a playground for the wealthy who could develop it for their own uh, means. And um, it, that would have been fine, except the rest of us wouldn't have really been able to enjoy it. Um, when that idea went down, and another idea came up and... Uh, even worse, I think, which was uh, to create uh, Biscayne Bay as um, an oil refinery uh, that would have had an amazingly deep um, uh, trench dug out to, uh, to allow for huge ships to uh, transport oil. And uh, that too, luckily, through the work of active citizens expressing their desire for uh, the the preservation of these natural lands that belong to all of us. Um, we went out, and and NPCA certainly had a, a voice in that fight. And without the role of concerned, active local citizens, um, it's not guaranteed that fight would have been won. Well, I can only imagine what the bay would look like today if an oil refinery would have actually happened. So, you know, this is why you know, organizations like yours are so important because you actually not only educate, but you help folks understand that advocacy really does matter, even today, under the circumstances that we live in right now. Aside from, from that, I think that Biscayne is so special too because it has, well, obviously a rich marine diversity, but also there's a cultural ethnic connection to the park Talk to us a little bit about Lancelot Jones and what he meant to the park and his history because a lot of people don't know how impactful that is, especially in Miami, where, where, in Miami Day, where we're so diverse but, and we have so many diverse communities. People don't even really understand that connection and that parks are for everybody. Mm -hmm. And Lancelot Jones made sure that parks remained for everybody, and that, this was his park. First, um, uh, the, the area of what is now Biscayne National Park became a, a monument. And um, that was largely uh, made possible by Lancelot Jones, who owned property, um, inherited property from his family to the National Park Service instead of selling to developers. He sold to the Park Service instead. Um, that was a, a big move. And the reason why he did that was um, because he, he thought that the, this place was was real, is really beautiful and should remain so, so that future generations could enjoy it. Um, but he's not the only one. And, and the Jones story family is really interesting because we, we've been focusing on Lance a lot, uh, but really his entire family is the real story that provides such a rich cultural history of our area that is really incredible. Uh, this is a, a African-American pioneer family from the 18. 70s, the father, Israel Jones, came down um, from North Carolina originally 
ended up working for Charles, uh, no, uh, for uh, one of the Monroes, Commodore Monroe, and uh, was able to purchase, uh, able to save some money and purchase land, uh, some of the keys, Porgy Key and a couple other keys in the South Bay. Uh, and he cultivated that land to become uh, among the largest growers and distributors of pineapples and key limes throughout the beginning of the 20th century. How interesting. I wonder yes. if key lime pies came from there. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a, um, during Prohibition days, there was a drink called the gin fizzy that without a key lime it just was not a gin fizzy. And so uh, Israel Jones and his two sons, Lancelot and Arthur, um, uh, both contributed to, <laughs> to uh, many people enjoying their gin fizzies. And the wife, um, Israel's wife, uh, Moselle Jones, was um, a worker in Coconut Grove, a Bahamian, uh, who was in the Bahamian village that became Coconut Grove. And this family, you can't get more local than the Jones family. And it's, a, it's an inspiring story. It's a success story. It's an American story. And NPCA um, has long been working with the Park Service and um, one of our former board members, Audrey Peterman, and our community partners have really, for many, many years, been making sure that this particular story is brought to light and shared uh, by the Park Service and by others. And, um, you know, me, along with others, have, you know, picked up that mantle and help to try to get this story in school curriculum. Um, you know, I grew up in Miami and I never heard this story until I was an adult. And why is that? I should have known about the Jones story. It's, they're amazing. So, um, so that's what we're trying to do. Well, and that's, that's, that's what's great about our national parks, that just not beyond the natural beauty, there, is, there are stories uh, within them that really make you know, America, what it is, it, our history, our culture, it's who we are, brings us together. Speaking of the park and its natural resources, Caroline, back to, you know, some of the environmental challenges that the, that the Bay is facing, um, the park and Biscayne Bay in general. Um, I know there's coral reef issues and, and some marine life um, uh, challenges, and um, obviously all this impacts our local tourism. Um, so what can what what are you guys doing as far as educating folks on how to protect our water our our natural area our, our park in general so yes Biscayne National Park has some really unique and amazing ecological treasures inside it but you're right there are a number of different environmental challenges that the park is facing um, I mentioned before that Biscayne is an urban park and so as the city of Miami grows so too do pressures grow on Biscayne National Park and so we've seen a lot of impacts to the park's resources from um, increasing population. So that leads to increasing development, water pollution, sewage issues. Um, we have an increasing number of people using the park, boating, fishing. And so we have the pressures of overfishing and what that has led to on fish populations within the park. Um, in addition to local stressors, we also have problems associated with global issues like climate change. And so as climate change intensifies, we are seeing um, increasing ocean temperatures, which leads to coral bleaching. It also leads to ocean acidification, which can harm coral structures and the ability of corals to maintain those kind of hard, stony structures that form the base of our coral reefs. 
Um, furthermore, recently we've seen really the severe outbreak and spread of a coral disease, um, coral tissue loss disease that started right off the coast of Miami and has been spreading up and down the reef track north and south. And so put all of these factors together and we're really seeing some severe challenges for the future of Biscayne National Park and Biscayne Bay and Miami's resources as a whole. Um, also in terms of water quality, we're not seeing enough fresh water reach um, Biscayne's coastal and nearshore areas. And that's a result of the re-engineering and hydro hydrological changes that came with, you know, changing the Everglades ecosystem in South Florida. Right, right. The water management system, basically, our exactly. system of canals, pumps, levees, exactly. you name it. Um, so what are we doing? What is the National Park Service doing? Uh, we are doing a number of things. We're really focusing on, you know, areas that we can really impact change, right? And so while we're not going to be able to stop the spread of climate change um, here as an organization here in South Florida, what can we do to increase the resiliency of the coral reefs? How can we better protect the reefs, the structures, the fisheries? Um, and so we're supporting an effort by the National Park Service in the state of Florida to create park-specific fisheries regulations within Biscayne. Um, we're focused on protecting and restoring coral reef ecosystems, on improving water quality, on Everglades restoration projects like the Biscayne Bay Coastal Wetlands Project that is going to bring more fresh water to Biscayne Bay and to Biscayne National Park. I know that the park just recently launched a campaign called Keep Biscayne Beautiful. And really it's to promote, you know, again, what we were all talking about, a healthy bay and what we can do to advocate for that and take action. And there's simple actions that people can take, even, you know, participating in cleanups, uh, educating our boaters. Um, the Keep Biscayne Beautiful campaign is something that I'm personally supporting. And I know that you, you all have been, you know, helping the park as well. So thank you for that. But you mentioned Biscayne Bay Coastal Wetlands, so we're gonna jump right into the comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, and Biscayne Bay Coastal Wetlands is a project that's part of that. It's on its way, um, but once it's completed, it will help restore the bay, actually restore fresh water into the bay and keep some of that salt salinity out of the bay, which is basically our water supply, if you think about it. Um, how, what, a, what more important water resource do we have than that? And I always say the environment here is the economy. Without a healthy bay, we have no economy. And we've seen that in other parts of the system. So Kara, you are the Everglades expert for MPCA. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, SERP and, and, and some of the, the progress that's been made and what else is yet to do and some of the delays we've had, frankly. Um, especially with Biscayne Bay Coastal Wetlands. Sure. So yes, Biscayne National Park and nearby Everglades National Park are both two relatively small areas preserved within what was once a much larger greater Everglades ecosystem. We know that it's all one part of different parts of one larger landscape and that these regions are connected through water. And we know that Florida's waters are in trouble. It goes beyond Biscayne, beyond the Everglades, beyond Florida Bay. It's Lake Okeechobee and the Caloosahatchee River in Fort Myers and the St. Lucie River in Stewart. All of our waters are in trouble. But the good news is we have a plan. The Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan, we call it SERP, was authorized by Congress in 2000. And it gives us a path forward to restore some of the freshwater flow that used to dominate this ecosystem. So the good news is that we have the science. We have really strong engineers who know what needs to be done. 
The bad news is SERP has never been fully funded. When Congress authorized the bipartisan SERP bill in 2000, there was an understanding that state and federal partners would each contribute $200 million per year to advance these projects, and we have never seen funding levels as high as they should be. In fact, last year, the president's funding request for SERP was under $70 million. So it's really a, a national priority for MPCA to make sure that the Everglades program is fully funded. That's why we've reached out to our members nationwide, asking them to support $200 million in SERP funding in FY20, both to the president and to both sides of Congress, um, because we need those funds to advance important projects like the Biscayne Bay Coastal Wetlands Project. Agreed, which has been sorely underfunded for years, um, and some progress has been made, but, you know, again, we're looking at, you know, 10, 15 years down the road, and honestly, none, none of the projects have that kind of time. We've been at this for 18 years, and I think that uh, the federal government needs to understand that a deal is a deal. And, you know, the state has put in a lot of money, and, and so have some local communities as well, like Miami-Dade County. We've, we've acquired so much environmentally sensitive land and have donated it to this project. So, I mean, you know, when you're talking about, you know, putting together partnerships, a partnership works when both parties are at the table and putting both, you know, their 50-50 their match um, um, on it. But, you know, we do have, we, we have done a lot of advocacy over the years. And I think that hopefully now we're starting to turn the corner. And it's unfortunate that we're, we're starting to turn the corner only because we're starting to see crisis in our system. Um, let's not, you know, let's talk about the blue-green algae. And let's talk about how, you know, yes, we realize now, visually, that the system was engineered, you know, to do its purpose, to dry us out. Because water back then was, you know, we couldn't live here, too much flooding, blah, blah, blah. So we did a great job. I think it's one of the most amazing engineering projects in the world. Um, but it has its down, you know, it has its, its con. And the con was that 60 years later, we were realizing, you know, that maybe we re-engineered it too much. And now it's the biggest restoration project in the world. Exactly. So with that, we really need to fast forward this restoration um, for our, you know, future generations to be able to live here and enjoy it like we have. So, um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I'd say, you know, 100 years ago, somebody looked at South Florida and said, gosh, this would be a great place to live if we didn't have all this water. And now we know how backwards that was because Floridians know that water is life and we're trying to bring that water back. Um, and I think urgency is leading to more action. Um, we're definitely behind in getting SERP done and a lot of the restoration projects haven't seen as much progress as we would have liked. Um, the blue-green algae, the red tide, the increasing storms yes. that are impacting our region are all lending themselves to urgency we know that the best way to combat climate change impacts is through Everglades restoration. When we stack the land with the clean, fresh water from the Everglades, we can push back against saltwater intrusion that is impacting our aquifers and threatening our drinking water supply. At the same time, strengthening our natural mangrove shorelines is our best defense against storm surge and hurricane force winds. There's a really cool example out of Southwest Florida um, at the Ding Darling National Wildlife Refuge in Sanibel. They were impacted by Hurricane Charlie many years ago, 
and both the refuge habitat and facilities were um, badly destroyed. In the intervening years, refuge staff really prioritized rehabilitating the mangrove shoreline. And so what we saw in Hurricane Irma, even though they took a stronger and more direct hit, the area was more resilient because the mangroves protected the inland areas. And so those are the types of projects that we need to keep um, focusing on to show folks who can give us the funding that this is not just about loving the Everglades, this is not just about feel-good environmental stuff, this is our sustainability to live as a community and succeed here in South Florida. The environment is the economy because we're a coastal state. And so every part of it, we've unfortunately seen the impacts of Hurricane Michael um, in the Panhandle and what that's done to um, those coastal areas and what it does to beaches. Um, you know, again, a beaches is another huge economic engine that we need to preserve and protect. So, you know, and again, it is also contingent on state and federal funding to restore our beaches as well. So there's a lot that needs to happen. And I think, you know, your organization, National Parks Conservation Association, does a great job in educating and also advocating and um, at all levels, at local, state, at federal levels. I've had the pleasure of joining you all on your lobby days. Um, advocating for Everglades restoration and, and it's, it's, it really does make an impact when you walk into a member's office and show, just show, just show pictures of before and after restoration. Even the work that we've been doing in Biscayne, with Biscayne Bay Coastal Wetlands, the pilot projects, the minute you start rehydrating those areas that were so dry and so saline, I mean, just nature bounces back. It's a no-brainer. So what can folks do to participate, join NPCA, join the efforts, learn more? Um, where do they go? What do they do? Well, I would say, you know, as a local who enjoys to go out on a boat in Biscayne Bay and Biscayne National Park, you know, be very mindful of your plastic bags that look like jellyfish, turtles' favorite food. Uh, there's really simple things that you can do, which is just leave no trace. Um, and that's one way to, to be active, an active citizen, is understand your impact in the, in the local environment. And the other is to become an e-activist. Sign up for our uh, activist list where we can be sure to keep you up to date on any particular votes that are going on, any particular actions. And, um, you know, uh, there's also lots of... Uh, activities in terms of showing up to your local congressman's office and joining us to join your voice with NPCA's uh, chorus of 1.3 million members and supporters to urge our elected officials to really make the right decisions for our, our national parks. Yeah, absolutely. Folks should join us at mpca.org, sign up for our advocacy alerts, and make sure that you let us know which parks you love so that we can mm -hmm. keep you in the loop when important decisions are coming up. Um, besides that, I'd say make friends with your local congressional office. Every single office has local staff who are paying attention to the issues that matter to you, and they want to hear from local residents. So to have someone pop in and say, I'm concerned about Biscayne National Park, I want to see more water to the Everglades, that's what's going to bring the attention to leaders who are impacting the policy and the funds to make this happen. Yeah, and again, you know, the parks, the, our ecosystem, our environment, they don't vote, <laughs> we do. So it's important to stay active and it's important to, 
to, to do the work so that we can you know, have a sustainable Florida, sustainable South Florida. Um, I thank you ladies for joining me on another episode of Resilient Forward. Uh, and again, you know, we'll, we'll see you all probably at the Everglades Coalition Conference, which is mm -hmm. coming up in January of next year. And that's where a lot of all these activists and um, advocates get together and together with the federal government, with our local partners in the Water Management District and the Army Corps of Engineers and others that are working on such important work. Absolutely, yeah. MPCA is proud to be part of the Everglades Coalition. We help organize the conference every year. This year it'll be January 10th through 13th in Duck Key. So we're really excited to be in the waters of South Florida. We're gonna have special sessions about marine conservation, about Florida Bay health, and folks can go to evergladescoalition.org to learn more. Great, and that's in the Monroe County, the Florida Keys. So we're giving back to that community that was hit pretty hard mm -hmm. with Hurricane Irma. So with that, um, thank you all for being here and um, see you soon. Thanks, Arla. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Resilient Forward. You can listen to other podcasts at resilientforward.com and follow us on Twitter at ResilientFWD. If you're interested in sponsoring our show or know someone who we should feature, please contact us. Remember, our environment is our economy. <laughs>